welcome to the False Neutral Podcast. This is episode 121 for February of 2022. All three of us are here this month. I'm Pete, Garrett, Eric. How are you guys doing? Not too bad. Ah, not too bad. In the middle of winter here, so it's, you know, happy it is and joys. So uh, let's just go ahead and jump into it. Uh, Garrett, what is your workshop update? I haven't really done any motorcycle stuff, um, actually, since the last podcast. I Let's see. I got some new garage doors for my shop, and so I've been working on getting those installed. Um, the workshop that I'm in has 10-foot-tall garage doors, and I'm, I'm downsizing those to 8-foot-tall doors for a variety of reasons. And so I have to reframe the openings a little bit. So I've been working on that, but I got some doors ready to go in. So that's kind of my workshop updates are just working on the workshop. <clears throat> Very good. Yeah. As you guys know, I was laid up for six weeks, unable to do anything, but I did uh, go ahead and start working on the front brakes and steering stops for my CVT bike, mm -hmm. my little uh, Predator. It's actually not a Predator. It's an LCT, but it's it's a GX clone, seven and a half horse clone yeah. motor in it. So uh, working on that, uh, steering stops, brake. And front fender mounts are all in work. I did find one of the sets of Suzuki forks that I bought for it had just the outside mounts for a Telefix fork brake or Lockhart or mm -hmm. one of those, but it didn't have the bridge for it. And the bridge normally has to be a kind of U shape curved piece to clear the front wheel, I found out they fit the forks for the bride. And because of the 16-inch front wheel, I can just put an aluminum plate across there and have plenty of clearance. So I'm in the process of also putting a fork brake on it. They're really long 35-millimeter cruiser forks, so it really probably needs to have a fork brace on it. Mm -hmm. And as a bonus, the fork brace will be a perfect place to mount a fender. I have a, I think it's a Yamaha 700 Maxim steel front fender that will work perfectly mounted to that little plate that I'm going to put in. So I got lots of things that I'm I'm working on. Nice. Playing around with the Benelli 2C frame that I got. Uh, was looking at swing arm options for that. And I bought a, a Yamaha SR250 swing arm thinking this will be perfect. And it would be, except that it's wide enough as it goes back, it fouls the uh, loops for the passenger pegs, which oh, I could yeah. either remove or I might want to use those for rear sets if I, you know, get real racy and put a long tank on it. So I don't know what I'm going to do, but I could narrow that. I could modify the frame or I could just spend another 30, 40 bucks on some other kind of swing arm. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so that's my workshop update. I will talk uh, something a little bit different about my projects. And that is over the last 10 years, there's been like three different 
web forums that I have participated in and posted build threads back when build threads were still a thing. Uh, the earliest one was caferacer.net, which was really good because there were some really experienced people on there that were vintage road racing enthusiasts, that this was all about vintage performance. And I got, when I didn't know anything, got really, really good advice, including some really hard criticism when I was doing things wrong. So I am I am indebted to those people that helped me learn what the heck I was doing as far as fabrication. That kind of died because it got bought out by a company called Vertical Scope. Vertical Scope owns something north of 1,200 different forums. They mm -hmm. don't start forums. They are what I like to think of as filter fish. <laughs> and I don't mean this to be derogatory because I understand Vertical Scope's business model. They buy existing web forums, and it's not just motorcycle or power sports forums. It's cars. It's gun forums. It's it's whatever niche enthusiast forums they can find. They use the existing content, you know, this this ten or fifteen year backlog of data as bait for search engines to get new people to come and hit their ads. They really don't care about generating new content that means a whole lot because it's just there to get people in to see their ads from search engines. Mm -hmm. They can make forums survive. And I think it's based on two things. One is they use one cookie cutter configuration that they use across the board. So they're distributing the IT costs and the software development across all of these different forums. And the second thing is they are not enthusiasts. They have a generic admin account. Whatever flunky or intern they have working that month gets that account. Because they've got somebody who doesn't know the subject, and it's probably a different person month to month, the moderation is very inconsistent. They don't do anything when you complain, and they just they piss people off. In fact, after Vertical Scope bought Pirate 4x4, some of those guys actually started irate 4x4. They just took the P off <laughs> and started their own because they hated the administration so much. Well, over the past number of years, I have been very involved in advrider.com, probably the biggest, most active, most successful web forum for motorcycles out there for at least the last five years. They had their own quarterly, big, thick, glossy magazine. Mm -hmm. They just got bought out by Vertical Scope. And I predict that Vertical Scope will kill it within 18 months to two years. All the enthusiasts will leave. So I am really coming to the conclusion that the whole web forum model is going away. That web forums are an anachronism. They're going to fade away no matter what anybody does about it. They're not commercially viable except to somebody like Vertical Scope that's going to basically whore them out. That being said, I decided I wanted to control the destiny of all of my content. So I went back to all of my threads. I gathered all that up, 300 posts, like 297 posts, wow. and created a WordPress website. 
all of my Project Bike posts going back for 10 years are now available at tanshinomi.com. T-A-N-S-H-A-N-O-M-I. You can go look at everything I've done. My Honda 125, Boltakenstein, the Aramaki Ducati Special, the Bride. You can pull them out and read them all by Project Bike or just simply look back chronologically through everything. Pictures are there, everything. So if any of those web forums die or go away, everything going forward will be posted there. Big developments will be posted on Hooniverse every once in a while. Uh, I'm I'm still going to post to ADV Rider. I know a lot of people there. And quite honestly, I've gotten more feedback on False Neutral, this podcast, through ADV Rider messages than I have from any other source. Hmm. If you want to see my stuff, you can find it all there. I own it. It's not even on WordPress.com. It's on my web space. So there you go. Cool. That's awesome. As a lot of work, too, I imagine. Oh, yeah. It was uh, lunch hours and evenings for probably six days. Oh, that's... And 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 I did go back, and there were times that I would post something, and 24 hours later go, oops, no, that didn't work. So rather than post that the way it happened, I kind of cleaned up some of the yeah. cow trailing that you end up doing as you're posting. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. so there you go. Yep. I really actually have always enjoyed forums, but... I guess my biggest frustration with them is that you'd have to go through, you know, 20 posts to get some posts with some meaningful information out of it. And I've never posted on a, a message board, but I've used them for information quite a lot. And I feel kind of bad for having never contributed really to <laughs> any. Well, my question is, what is going to replace them for people who want to exchange information online? Because there are some, yeah. there are some really good Facebook groups. Uh, some of the Boltaco owner face, there's, there's, unfortunately, there's like five of them now, which it drives me crazy that a lot of people cross post their stuff to five different groups that have mm-hmm. maybe 20% of the membership in common and there's no threading. You can't go back and exactly. look at a That's... particular thread. Everything just just a big mismatch of messages right. mm-hmm. yeah. where it's just very disorganized. And I don't necessarily like the privacy issues with Facebook. <laughs> and if stuff on a forum you could always find there, I find it very difficult to go back and locate old posts that I know I saw on Facebook because their algorithm, when you search – tries to direct you towards what they want you to see. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, YouTube. There are some really good YouTube channels out there. I will specifically mention Paul Brody. Uh, we've talked about in the past, he's the guy that built uh, an Excelsior board tracker that didn't exist from old photographs and drawings. Mm, yeah. Literally like cast the cases uh, he is remarkable. He's not clickbaity at all. He he could be somebody from NPR. He starts everyone with, hi, Paul Brody in my shop. <laughs> Today we're doing this. We're making an exhaust pipe. We're machining this part, or we're going to assemble the front end on my Aramaki. He's very low key. He's like, if you want to buy us a coffee, that'd be great. And he sells some merchandise, but he doesn't hard sell it at all. The guy's been a machinist for like 55 years. 
So he really knows what he's doing. Um, I've talked about Angus Campbell before. Angus Campbell uh, is a guy that is trying to recreate the 1971 BSA lineup, including the prototype bikes that they made very few of. Yeah. He's charming. He doesn't edit his stuff at all. He talks really slow. And sometimes he'll like spend 10 minutes with a camera pointed to like a points plate and he'll talk about how he's adjusting his points. But he is probably one of the most genuine people who is doing it simply because he has enthusiasm for his subject matter. So uh, the Revzilla people, uh, Zach Quartz and Ari and some of the other people on Revzilla do great, great stuff as well. Yep. There's a couple other people out on YouTube that are doing really great stuff, and it's video, so it's more interesting than a couple of pictures and a bunch of text you need to read. Um, anything else that you guys would add for replacing forums going forward? What do you? What kind of online content is more relevant now? The motorcycle content that I consume is more of just the entertainment stuff. It's not really like the how to do such and such to your motorcycle. So, I mean, I do like Revzilla and 44 Teeth. Um, those ones are my favorites. I do like, I like adventure things of any sort. So anyone that does any kind of adventure on a motorcycle, I like, uh, you know, on YouTube. But in terms of like, you know, how to do something, I don't really know. Of, I haven't really watched anything. Well, the only thing is you already know how to do everything. You're one of the people who tell other people. Yeah, I suppose that's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah there's that I'm gonna step out and I'll catch you guys on the internet here soon okay okay all right see ya Eric what about you any anything that you would recommend I know you're a 44 teeth fan um yeah um actually I just found a new plugin um for YouTube which I found to be incredibly useful I think it's called pocket I'll find it in a second um back in the day you could do folders in your YouTube account and like separate different channels or different types of content uh, into different folders. And a number of years ago, they got rid of that for, you know, for whatever reason, I don't know, but it was, it was great because you could just pick and choose. But then, but what I've done is I've separated out all my motorcycle content. <sighs> yeah. I, I kind of poke around here and there on some stuff. So yes, 44 teeth, uh, MCN are, are kind of uh, given uh cager, We'll watch here and there, depending on some stuff. Mm -hmm. He took a break for a while, but he started doing content again, and I've watched it, although it's been more scooter stuff, which isn't really that interesting to me, but occasionally I'll watch it just because it's like, well, it's it's different, and I have this thing about Portugal in the last year, so I kind of learn about Portugal. Yeah, me too, yeah. Uh, as, yeah. Uh, I was going to be going to Portugal with my wife and a couple that we're good friends with this spring, ah. and with... COVID still sure. Omicron and closures at borders and planes. And we were like, nah. not that we were worried about getting sick. We're all vaccinated and boosted and everything, but it's the hassle. Oh, you're going to get to London and be quarantined for 14 days. I can't afford a London hotel right. for 14 days because <laughs> right. I can't get home. Right. So yeah, I would agree. I, Lisbon or Porto would be like, mm -hmm. that'd be like where I'd be headed. Yeah. Um, Alentasia was is also sort of uh, in the Douro mm. Valley or kind of the areas I'm interested in. So it's sort of like Tuscany, Tuscany on a budget, <laughs> you know. If you yeah. if you kind of yeah. if you kind of like that. Um, all right. So it, 
currently classified in my motorcycles folder here. I have Taylor McKenzie, who is Neil McKenzie's son. He raced for a while, but um, uh, retired last year, and now he's going to be like the rider coach and manager for uh, a Moto3 team uh, this year, which is, uh, which one is it? Michael Laverty, who's also on BT Sports and the former racer. Uh, he, he basically took one of the, but when Patronus explode, imploded, their Moto3 team got sold off. He took over that anyway. So, um, Royal Enfield, I watch their stuff just because we know them and they're, they're cool people. Um, motorcyclist magazine here and there, motorcycle, motorcycle.com. There's some that are entertaining. Uh, Cager, Baron von Grumble, 44 teeth. Yeah. And then, and then like, yeah, I poke around on Missenden Flyer and, and a few others here and there. Missenden Flyer is not always the most exciting thing, but it's, it's. He's usually interesting or he has a point of view. Yes. He, he's consistently interesting. Yes. And, and his production values are not over the top, but they're good. I mean, he, he, he doesn't do, uh, who's the guy from Canada that I can't stand? Um, 49. Yeah, just production techniques for the sake of showing yeah, production techniques. Yeah, yeah, it's, you're it's you're like, trying to impress other other creators and not the not the people you're doing the the content for. Yep. And sometimes it's I'm going to hide the lack of real knowledge mm-hmm. with a lot of shiny objects. Yep. yep. Revzilla, you know, I, I've got them. I I don't have. I'm not subscribed to them, but um, you know, I they show up enough in my general recommended stuff. That I that I watch a, a bunch of that, um, but to Garrett's point, and he he brought up something, and I realized that he likes stuff that I like. I've just been doing it differently, so I've been sort of watching some four by four off road adventure channels and some sailing channels over the last year or two. You know, as he said, I realized, oh yeah, I need to find a motorcycle equivalent of that because I like the fact that these people are going places and doing things like different places and different things, even if they kind of do the same thing in different places, it makes it more interesting and entertaining. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of my motorcycle stuff on, on YouTube. And, and I spend way too much time on YouTube. So, uh, do you follow races to places? I do not. Lyndon Poskett. Okay. He's an off-road racer and kind of a gypsy. Okay. That's, that's a really good one. It's all different places in the world. Some of times he's racing. Sometimes it's just touring. If you like motorcycle adventure stuff, really good, good yeah, stuff. Yeah, Lyndon so. Poskett TV or whatever. And I see he's got a picture with like races to places on his on a motorcycle here. So yeah, yeah, it's, I'll give him a look. So I appreciate that. Uh, another one I'll mention, a couple other uh, classic motorcycle channel. Hmm. It is actually just classic bikes okay. working on them or here, let me show you this classic bike. It's it's very enjoyable, I think. Yeah. Uh, I've learned a lot from them. And another one that is very much a workshop one is Michael Waller. He's, mm-hmm. a, he's a Brit living in the United States, and he restores – not really restores. He resto mods old British bikes. Okay. Another one that he's kind of low-key, kind of slow in his delivery, but – very knowledgeable and and fun to see how he does stuff because he's he has a well equipped shop but he's always kind of figuring out the the shade tree way to do something and still make it look very professional. So Michael Waller, Britannia Motorcycles. Yes, he's he's yep. he's good. And there are some that I follow that aren't necessarily. There's some welding channels and like, mm-hmm. uh, well, Mike Festiva. I follow his yep. stuff. Uh, he's always entertaining. I have thought about instead of posting stuff because I do video work at work. 
And I've thought about, should I start a, I actually have a YouTube channel I don't use, make some workshop videos. And two things. One is you're going to spend two minutes of prep and post for every minute you actually work on what you're doing. You're going to get a third done if you try to film it. Mm -hmm. And I do this for my job. I don't want to turn my hobby into work. Mm -hmm. I would rather snap a picture with my cell phone and write up something than work in Final Cut Pro. Yep. That kind of takes the joy out of getting away from work. So No, I mean, I've, I've made 350 or 400 videos reviewing cars and products and stuff like that in the last, I don't know, 15 years. And I haven't really done many videos lately just because I got burned out on the fact of like you, you spend all these hours and you get 2,000 people to watch it. Okay, was that really worth 15 hours of my time? Yeah. You know, yeah. between setup and, you know, and plus the expense of cameras and audio equipment. And, you know, when you're filming this time of year, it's four degrees outside. Um, I can shoot, a, I can shoot photos of a, of a car in 20 minutes. That's not bad. But when you're setting up cameras and videoing, if you're standing outside to do stand up and it's like, no, 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 I'm done with that. I'm, I've been rethinking a format for a year and a half. I just need to go do it. So. My job is write up a script and kind of a video storyboard. My video work is a video rough draft. If everybody in the company decides, yeah, this is really something that we want to roll out to the public, it goes to a professional video house. Mm-hmm. They they really know what they're doing. I've realized I'm not very good at video. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like uh, somebody asked Steve Jobs, when vi- desktop video editing first came out, they said, well, how do you think this is going to impact the video industry? And he said, it's going to be exactly what happened after we came out with the laser printer. And there were a bunch of people with no training making really bad desktop publishing decisions. <laughs> There's a real art to making video of knowing how to frame something, when to have a talking head with an inset, when to have green screen, when to have voiceover, when to have Ken Burns effects. Mm -hmm. It's like that is a set of skills that is totally separate from Premiere or Final Cut Pro. Mm -hmm. Video production is, in my mind, something different than filmmaking. Yep. And I don't necessarily think I would make good videos if I was doing that. Um, I, yeah. From just the sheer volume of what I've done and watching what other people do and sort of you like you find what you like and you sort of either copy it or or take that style and make it your own. I can usually get about 70 to 80 percent of where I want it. But like you say, it's that that last 15 to 20 percent where I would need someone else. And I've never had the the revenue stream or had enough extra money just from my regular job where I could afford to have someone and just like here, fix this for me or finish this for me or whatever, even though it'd be worth my time to do it. Or just spend the time yeah. that it would take to get that level of skill. Yep. You know, it's that 10,000 hour rule that if you yeah. don't do this all day as your career, you're going to look like an amateur. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a guy, he's not a motorcycle guy. His name is Brian Rupnow, and he's a, a older Canadian gentleman that builds working like desktop internal combustion engines. Wow. He posts like 30, 40 second videos with his phone of, well, got it running. Here it is running with, you know, the new ball bearing crank or whatever. And he kind of shouts over the sound of the engine. 
<laughs> I love them. There's zero editing. There's zero production value, but it is him showing you what he's doing. Yeah. And he doesn't try to quote unquote produce. Right. He just points his cell phone at a running engine and shouts a description for 30 seconds. It's like, I love it. It's mm-hmm. and, and the fact that he's really, really good at building these engines and is very humble about his knowledge makes it that much more enjoyable. Yeah. 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 No, that's, that's cool. I've had a lot of thoughts on this and I just, I've got to get motivated to start redoing stuff again because I've seen a couple of people take some ideas I had 18 months ago and like, Oh, you got there too. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. But just for, for reasons I need to be better about getting my stuff out faster. So we didn't get to a, a workshop update for you because I know you probably haven't been in the workshop. <laughs> <laughs> the siren call of the XS 400 has not been strong enough to lure you out into the cold. Yeah, no, it's been, it's not brutal cold, but it's, I don't think it's been about freezing since like the third of January. So, <laughs> but I know that you have, been up to some stuff that's pretty cool so what have you been up to yeah so this past saturday uh ducati north america is doing a tour and they came to detroit uh to ducati detroit to unveil or show off the desert x which is their new it's 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 funny to call a 800 cc eight almost 900 cc bike a uh middleweight adventure bike but that's that's really what it is in, in today's market in past years they've had um I, I can't think of Jason's last name off the top of my head right now, uh, but he's the CEO of Ducati North America. Uh, come and uh, we interviewed. I've interviewed him, and we had that on the show a couple right, years ago too. Right. This year, they sent the uh, director of marketing for Ducati North America along because Jason was busy doing some other stuff. Uh, who's a gentleman named Phil Reed? And if that name sounds familiar, yes, it does. <laughs> yes, it does. Well. His real name is Phil Reed Jr., as in, yes, Phil Reed was my father. And, and it was funny because that was Phil, the, Phil Reed, the yep. famous the motorcycle, motorcycle racer. road racer for those people who either don't follow road racing or aren't old enough yeah. to know Phil Reed. But he he's one of the legends yes, of the sport. Absolutely. And it was funny. That was sort of our icebreaker. He's like, oh, I'm, I'm Phil Reed. I had never met him before, although he's been working for Ducati for like six years, apparently. And I said, well, there's a good name to have in the motorcycle industry. And he goes, yeah, yeah. It's like I borrowed it from my father, but, uh, you know, I've kind of, I tried to make it my own. So he was, he's good natured about it. And I didn't talk about his dad after that because I'm sure he's sick and tired of talking about his dad. He'd rather be known for his own accomplishments. But anyways, really, really good gentleman. Um, and I'm going to, he, he's got like, they're doing like 20 stores in like 26 days or something like that. So, um, once he's off of that tour, I'm going to reach out to him and maybe see if we can get him on the, on the show to expand more about what Ducati's doing. But, um, the Desert X itself, really cool looking bike. Uh, if it looks like a 19, late 1980s Kajiva elephant, that's intentional. Uh, it has some really, really cool details. Like the, uh, the, the dash is styled to look like a, uh, the uh the feed that a rally book has in the you know where, where the, the the two scrolls that where the paper comes across or at least in the old days it did that i don't know how they're doing it these days but i think kind of the same way from what i saw from the dakar race this year 
a lot of it looks really well done. Nice build quality, although he couldn't sit on it because it was literally a prototype bike. But um, all the parts look good. The the fit and finish looks good. It'll be roughly 460 pounds full of fluids. Um, it's the engine from the Ducati Monster, so it's a 110, 111 horsepower uh, V-twin. Yeah, and that changed. The, originally, this was going to be the air-cooled Scrambler 1100 motor, Yes, and then they went to the liquid-cooled yes. motor. Did they explain what their motivation was in making that? It w- was just they realized people wanted the power, or? It was it was a combination of things. Um, yeah, he, he specifically addressed that in that if it was going to be part of the scrambler line, it would have been built more to a price where if they called it a Ducati rather than a scrambler, they could throw a little more money at it and do it the way they really, really wanted to do it, uh, to compete with the, with the BMWs and the KTMs, um, and, and be more of a, I don't want to say a harder core, but a much more aggressive bike. Than, than would be possible in the scrambler line. <clears throat> so yeah, it was, um, uh, let's see if I got some, some quick stats on it here. Uh, yeah, 937, 937 cc V, V twin Desmo. Um, it, it is, it does have the regular valve, uh, train on it like the monster does. So you got 18,000 mile valve adjustment. So never <laughs> for most people. Um, uh, they did some shorter gearing, uh, 21 inch front tire, 18 inch rear. So it's true, uh, truly set up for off road on that. Does have the trellis frame, which I'm sure some monster people will be jealous of. Uh, this was kind of cool. They have a, a normal five and a half gallon tank and then they're going to have a two and a half or excuse me, 2.1 gallon accessory tank. Um, kind of behind, I'm trying to think of where it was, but I think it was behind the seat. Um, so you're going to have like, it's got a two-piece seat. I wonder if that replaces the passenger, the pillion. There is a back. passenger. There is a pillion seat on there. I, 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 they showed it how it fits in there in in a slide in the deck, but I don't recall where it was right I'm, now. I'm so just wondering that's, that's, if if when you put the the, the accessory, accessory tank if, on, if you, you might lose the you might lose. Seat. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's very very uh, very likely. That would make sense to me. Yeah. Um, they do, it's a 34 inch seat height, which really isn't as bad as I, I expected it to be taller than that. No. And I want to touch on that. They do have a, a lower seat available and they do have a lower suspension, uh, as a, as available kit as well. The, the Ducati Detroit store had two different V4 Multistratas, um, on display just as their normal thing, a regular one. And then a Pikes Peak. I sat on the regular Multistrata V4. It was on its center stand. And I couldn't swing a leg over it. I literally had I had to physically pick my leg up to to get it over the seat. Hmm. That's I'm like, and I'm five ten with a thirty two inch inseam, so I would say very average. Um, so yeah, people who do that in full riding gear, good on you. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, full electronics suite. Uh, with a bunch of different riding modes. I have to say, um, I thought it was really cool the the instrument panel on that looks like like a rally clock yeah yeah it's a portrait display yes uh like a garmin montana would be mounted on Mm. behind the screen Mm -hmm. instead of having one of these uh you know horizontal automotive looking dashes it's a little butch it's kind of hardcore i I really like the vertical dash on it i wasn't sure when i saw it without it turned when they didn't have the power going to it but once they flipped the key on it and it and it lit up i'm like 
oh, I like that. It looks it looks really nice. It's a uh, good sharp graphics on it. And I really so. like the fairing on it. Um, the way the fairing mm-hmm. and, and the tank, it, it looks, I don't know how to say that. It reminds me of Kajiva. like old Paris to car bikes. Yeah, yeah. And but, that, it that. Do, it, but it doesn't look like it's trying to conspicuously be retro either. It's it's with the twin headlights up front and the, mm-hmm. you know, it's got LED lights on it and stuff. It, I thought they did a really good job yeah. on the appearance of it. I don't, I'm not in the market. I'm not their target customer. Mm-hmm. But I have to say, it's a handsome looking thing that could have been just really weird or awkward looking. Yeah, they they didn't get real heavy handed with it. They they took inspiration from and and put a modern interpretation on it. And I think it came out came out really well. I think some of it is they didn't go hog wild on the graphics. Mm-hmm. It's got a nice little yes. vertical stripe on the side and that's it. There's not a big Ducati on the tank. They didn't put some kind of big number plates on the side of it or anything. Yeah. And the the hexagons on the windscreen are kind of nicely. It's a little detail, but it's kind of nicely done um, with the different sizes going from from small to large as you go down. Um, so, yeah, it was it was cool. Looks like it's tubeless wire spoke wheels. Yes, that is correct. They are they are tubeless wire wire wheels. Yep. Which to me is the best of both worlds. The way to do it. Yep. And and again, twenty one in the front, eighteen in the rear. So it's got it comes with the Pirelli Scorpion off road tires. Um, but you know, if if that's not what you like, if you like from what Continental and I can't remember what the other one is that everyone seems to go to, um, you you can easily go to them because they're they're properly sized. Um, and then they're going to have a whole not only of course it's Ducati, so not only they're going to have accessories to go with it, they're going to have a clothing line to go with it as well. But um, but you know, as you would low pipe on it but it's looks like it's got a pretty good bash plate it looks like it's pretty yep. pretty well protected that you could actually go through some pretty tough stuff mm-hmm. without worrying about the undercarriage yep um probably 167 uh an available he said hopefully to have it in mid to late june um but july for sure the one thing i asked him about was you know are you are you constrained in your production because of supply chain and all the usual things and he said no, not really. That said, they're pretty much doing build the order. So they're not going to be making a bunch of bikes to put on showrooms. If you want a bike, you go to your dealer, you're going to order it and then they'll, they'll get it to you. So, um, which in today's world, um, that's kind of SOP. And I think for the next few years, that's going to be a thing because it's really helping the manufacturers and control their costs. It's certainly helping dealers in their costs as well. So I think it's good for everybody except the consumer who wants to buy a bike and, and drive right off that day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you're going to have to hold back your, your gratification. I don't see a whole lot of impulse purchases of a desert X. You're, you're going to know you want that. Yeah, exactly. Right. So there were two other interesting, well, there are a bunch of interesting things he said, but well, just to, to keep it somewhat brief, um, that the adventure, the adventure bike market, even though that, you know, it's been the hot thing, it still really is the hot thing. Uh, it's still continuing to grow, but again, it's where before it was the bigger bikes. Now they're really starting to see a movement in the middleweight bikes, which, so they're timing this kind of perfectly to come with that. And also, if I understood this correctly, because I asked a couple times and then he basically gave me the same answer every time, the Multistrada was their best selling motorcycle for 2021. Yes. Which I thought was extraordinary, considering it's a you know twenty one thousand to twenty seven thousand dollar motorcycle. 
Yes. Yeah. Uh, another podcast that I listen to, Front and Chatter, mm -hmm. which is two journalists from the UK. They talked about the sales success of the Multistrada and the percentage of GS sales for BMW. Overwhelmingly, their best seller is the GS. Mm -hmm. For both companies, they're having record years, and it's all on the back of their adventure bikes. Mm. Um, the other interesting stat is people who buy monsters right now, the new monster, 70% of those buyers are first-time Ducati buyers. Interesting. Yeah. Ducati is now 3.8% of the market for over 500cc motorcycles. Hmm. So they're, they're growing. Um, oh, we talked about the Ultimas that, that they're only going to do 12 worldwide per year. That's their whole custom thing. It's not bespoke, but it's yeah, certainly. We didn't, we didn't talk about that on the podcast, but that's their, if you want a one of a kind machine. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't know. Is that, you know, seat covering and paint or is this, you, you can't go in and say, I want to, you know, put the Multistrada V4 engine in a, in Correct. a Deval. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Correct. So it's still got to be Ducati because of government regulations worldwide, you know, right. in the sense of it has to be, everything has to be homologated as is. So you can't um, change the exhaust. You can't change the, you know, intake and fueling and stuff. Yeah. Like and you keep, yeah. And like you say, you can't put a, an engine into a frame that doesn't already have it. So things like that. But yes, it'll be, there'll be some styling that you'll be able to customize, uh, body work, they're not saying one way or other, but it's got to, it's still got to be a Ducati. But yes, if you want it custom painted to match your car, like the one guy in California did and, you know, the match the interior and everything. So there's going to be a lot of things that they're going to do. They will have final, they, they will say yes and no to some things, but you will be able to greatly customize it. But it's one on one with a stylist in Italy. Yeah. Which basically means you have enough money. You could do this on your own if you wanted to. Yes. People with that much money can go in and say, I want to talk to a stylist. I'm going to spend a buttload of money. They're just publicizing the fact that people do this. Yeah. And I said, oh, because Phil was is British. I said, oh, this is sort of like I buy the Rolls Royce chassis and then I go to Cullinan or Brooks or whoever and just have a custom body for it. Kind of. And he goes, conceptually, you're correct. Yeah. Just to draw a, a kind of an analogy. It was, it's, it's not exact, but it's it's directionally correct. So, yeah. Um it was it was really good. Uh, got to spend probably a good 20, 25 minutes talking with Phil, which, you know, I, and he was, you know, he said oh, he would have been happy to talk longer, but I didn't want to monopolize his time. So um, and like I said, hopefully we stay in contact with him and we'll get him on the show and we can talk about more things Ducati. That would be very um, cool. I, I'd like to get yeah. back to having some more guests on the show. Uh, when you mentioned Cager, I've been thinking for a while. I know he had a wreck yep. in traffic, and that's kind of when he slowed down. And now that he's getting back into it, I'd like to have him back on the show, and if nothing else, talk about Portugal. You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it'll be yeah, it'll be you and I. Like, so talk to us about where we're going to retire in Portugal. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we shouldn't say that because enough people are already going there. It's making things too expensive already. So yeah, but yeah, it's everything I see about Portugal is beautiful, and yeah, it'd be great to talk to. Now that you now that we're more educated about his country than we were when we talked to him, what four years ago, maybe? I bet it's been at least four years because he was he was one of our first guests that we actually yeah. pursued. Anything else we need to talk about before? Oh, have you seen uh, what they call the Gold Line limited editions from Triumph? I have. I've seen a couple of them. I'm underwhelmed. 
as somebody that's talked about wanting a bobber, mm-hmm. I think that the bobber gold line for this year is spectacular. It's the only one that has the front and rear fenders match the tank. It's a gorgeous red color with silver side panels. Okay. And if it would not mean I couldn't retire when I wanted to retire, I would be pitching this to my wife. Yeah. I'm a little torn because for really getting out and riding, my Can-Am is an old boomer trike that people make fun of. Mm -hmm. But it really is how I do the vast majority of right now. It's the only thing I have that's street worthy that I that I ride on. It needs a rear tire. It needs its 15,000 mile service, including valve adjustments. It's shim under bucket. So it's really involved. And mm-hmm. there's so much body work that needs, you basically have to strip it down to the frame. Yeah. The quote I got from my local dealer, who's not a ripoff place, but not really known to provide the good guy price either. Rear tire replacement and 15,000 mile service, two grand. Okay. That's BMW Ducati territory. Yeah, sure. My wife, a year ago, bought a brand new Spider RT, which is their touring model. has the nicer three-cylinder engine, Mm -hmm. uh, and it has the semi-automatic. It's basically a paddle shifter. Mm -hmm. Left-hand thumb switch up and down. And the only thing you have to do is click up through the uh, gears as you accelerate. It's a manual. It's not even a dual clutch. It's a regular manual five-speed, but it's got a electronic control for the clutch and shifting. So as you come to a stop, it automatically downshifts to keep from lugging the engine, keep it in proper rev range, automatically goes into neutral as you come to a stop, automatically puts it into first and engages the clutch when you twist the throttle. The only thing you have to do, it does not automatically upshift. Mm -hmm. It'll let you rev it out as high as you want, but everything else it'll do automatically or you can sit there and you can select what you want at any speed. Sure. In 2012 and 2013, when we first bought Spiders, we were like, why would we want that? I've got a, a manual transmission in my car. I've got my Kazashi. I specifically was like, I'm getting the six-speed. I want to mm-hmm. have a clutch and a shifter in my car. Why wouldn't I want that on the bike? Her reaction to it now is she would never go back to a manual clutch. Having ridden hers, it's not a sport bike. It's not right. It's, we're not on the racetrack. We're not dragging a knee through the turns. It's a touring machine, and we're in the Midwest. Most of what we do is right. just straight line tour. It's pretty darn nice for going out on the road, especially on a multi-day tour. One of the things I love about motorcycles, and a Can-Am still gives me that, the panorama that you get without a windshield. Mm -hmm. You don't have a roof. You don't have any A-pillars. You don't have the edges of a windshield. You just have this uninterrupted view that I love. However, an adjustable windshield that you can put up when you're in the buffeting headwind at 70 miles an hour, I'm starting to get to the age where I'm starting to see, yeah, that'd be nice. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. So I am wrestling with... Do I spend the two grand or do mm-hmm. I trade it in? The 
you know, sport touring riding position with lower bars and rear set pegs? Or do I want the really nice vibration damping floorboards and the sequential semi-automatic transmission, uh, nicer wind protection? Yep. And the V-twin that's in mine was originally developed for Aprilia. Yep. It was, it's, it was in the, the Falco and in the Mila. Yep. It Juano, was, in, yep. yeah, that it was, was in everything. You don't want to run that below about four grand. Four to nine grand is where it's happy. Anything below that, it really is not happy. Okay. It's a sport bike engine. Mm-hmm. The new ones, 1200 RPM, hit the throttle, especially with the automatic transmission. It just goes effortlessly at any speed. I don't know how old and crotchety I am yet. <laughs> I also don't know whether I want to spend the $25,000 it takes to buy one when mine's right. been paid off for years. Mine's probably worth about ten grand. If I trade it in, they're only going to give me three quarters of that. Maybe. And the fact that it needs $2,000 worth of maintenance, they're going to lowball me well, on that. That work's still going to have to be done, yeah. and they're going to deduct I, that off the price. Have you? Have you? I'm sure you have done the peek at Cycle Trader or Facebook Marketplace just to see what everyone else is selling, like your equivalent of. Well, or- yeah, private party Blue Book on it's probably between nine and ten. Yeah, I did a Vroom. I think it is. It's not Vroom. I'm trying to think of what it was. They're really more focused on cars. I don't. I think their bike trade is minimal. Rumble so. on. That's what it was. Okay. Rumble on, which is a motorcycle specific cash offer place, mm. and I think it was like forty three, forty five, maybe. I think they came in at like forty three fifty, and I, when I didn't respond, they were like, "Well, we can maybe go forty five if you're still interested. Email us back." <laughs> no, that's literally less than half the blue book. Right, right. The problem is it's got that manual transmission, mm. which is really not popular with people who want spiders. Gotcha. Also, it doesn't have wind protection. It doesn't have floorboards. It doesn't have a backrest. It's got a real stiff anti-sway bar. It's got Fox podium shocks on it. It was really the last thing they made that was designed to be a sport touring rather than a touring version of this. That style was already not very popular when I bought it in 2013. It's less mm-hmm. popular today. Going down a curvy road, this definitely is sportier handling. Mm. As far as trikes go, it blows anything out of the water, including an RT, and any of the, the rear wheel trikes like the Harley Triglide and stuff like that. Sure. And I know there's a lot of motorcycle people who are like, it's a trike, it's going to suck. It really didn't. When we went down into southeast Missouri, and we were on some really, really seriously twisty roads with elevation changes and camper changes and stuff. I was in heaven. I will say it's higher physical effort in turns. Not nearly as bad as like a triglide or something, but mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, you feel it in your shoulder blades. If you've been out for six hours in the twisties, you're going to feel it. It doesn't have that effortless swoop that a motorcycle has. Yeah. So I was kind of like, well, I can keep what I have and sink a couple thousand dollars into it. I don't know what I'm going to do. Yeah. But I'm pretty sure I'm not going to go spend 15 or 16 grand on a Triumph Bobber. But if I was, if I had all the money in the world and I was going to buy a new two-wheel motorcycle, mm-hmm. I'd probably already have that Bobber Gold line 
in my driveway or my okay. It would have to be in my driveway because I don't have any room in my garage. So. <laughs> well, if you had all the money, you'd have you'd have. That's true. I'd I'd have I'd have a shed garage. to put it in. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Well, my wife is home, so I'm going to go have dinner. All right. Sounds good. Thank you for joining me, and thank you to Garrett. He had to take off and do dad stuff. Our agreement is family comes first. Thank you, listeners. Our listener volume has gone up since we have moved from Shout Engine to Anchor. Not the fake numbers. Yeah. yeah. But the real numbers. Yeah, the real numbers. Yeah, yeah. Have have gone up. Cool. That's awesome. So uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for telling your friends. Uh, Hooniverse.com. You can go see... Uh, all the bikes that we talk about, including Eric's pictures. And Eric, you're going to have an, a Hooniverse feature on the Desert X coming up. Yep. Don't don't know when that'll be, but keep an eye on Hooniverse for that. Uh, if you want to see anything that I am doing in my garage, tanchinomi.com. Yep. And we will be back next month with another podcast. There you go. Till then, ride safe. Bye-bye. <laughs>